Well, we are going to be today in John chapter 11 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, I've got to ask you, Christmas, T-minus eight days and counting. Can you believe it? Christmas Eve, next Sunday, Christmas Day, the, the day after. So how many of you have finished your Christmas shopping? Okay, all two of you. Wonderful, wonderful. How many of you honestly haven't started yet? You know, you've got eight days left, plenty of time, right? Well, if you've started Christmas shopping, have you noticed that prices are more expensive than ever? And if you have suspected that prices have gone up in the past year, you are correct. In fact, there's a more scientific study that's published every year to show how prices increase on Christmas gifts from year to year. It is the PNC Index. The PNC Index is put out by PNC Bank, and this year is the 40th annual PNC Christmas Price Index. Yay! Isn't that exciting? What on earth does that mean? Here's what it means. They go through and look at the gifts given to you by your true love over the 12 days of Christmas. You know the song? 12 days of Christmas, nine ladies dancing, all of that, partridge in a pear tree. They look at all of those gifts and tabulate how much it would cost you this year compared to last year. So let's put this up on the screen for you. So here is this year's totals on what the 12 days of Christmas will cost your love if your true love decides to buy you this stuff this year. 12 drummers drumming, going to set you back on more than $3,400. You go to the bottom right there, partridge in a pear tree, the first day of Christmas. I've got good news. The partridge is the same price as last year. Unfortunately, the price of a pear tree has gone up. So the total increase from last year, a partridge in the pear tree will set you back 3% more than it would have a year ago. Two turtle doves. There's something with birds. Birds are more expensive than they were last year. Two turtle doves have gone up. You look at all these gifts. There is some good news. A few of these prices have held steady. Nine ladies dancing is the same price as last year. $8,300. Isn't that encouraging? How do they tabulate that? Well, minimum wage at least the national minimum wage, hasn't gone up in the past year. And so minimum wage for the ladies dancing, they're saying that's the same price. You look at all of these days of Christmas, just the 12th day by itself. Remember in the song, the 12th day is when your true love gives you all of these gifts together on one day. That'll set you back this year a whopping $46,729. That's about a $1,200 increase from last year. Now, what about overall 12 days? If you got all of these gifts in the song spread out over all 12 days, the grand total would be $201,972. That's a $5,000 increase from last year. Isn't that exciting? How many of you are excited about doing your Christmas shopping now? Me neither. (laughs) But what I am excited about is Jesus Christ. Because that's the reason we celebrate Christmas in the first place. Amen? I'm excited. Oh, you guys sound really excited about Jesus. Yay, Jesus. You guys excited about Jesus this Christmas? That's what I love to hear. So, we're excited about Jesus, and we're going to study more about Him today as we dive into this great passage of Scripture, John chapter 11. If you don't love this passage already, I think you'll love it today uh, as we study it together. Uh, This is a great, great passage of Scripture. Last week, we finished John chapter 10. We saw that Jesus was there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. It was around this time of year. The Feast of Dedication, remember, uh, corresponds with our modern-day Hanukkah. 
It was December. Jesus was coming down the home stretch of his life and public ministry in a little over three months. He would be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He would be beaten, arrested, and nailed to a cross. In John chapter 10, Jesus revealed to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that he is the Son of God, one with the Father. But even though the evidence was overwhelming that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, the Pharisees didn't believe him. Instead, they picked up rocks and wanted to stone him to death. And so Jesus, by the time we get to the end of chapter 10, goes about 20 miles away from Jerusalem to this remote area on the other side of the Jordan River. And it says at the end of chapter 10, in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that final verse in chapter 10. In that place, many believed in Jesus. Say that with me. In that place, many believed in Jesus. And John, the gospel writer, is going to latch on to that word belief. And as we go into chapter 11, we're going to see that he's going to revisit this idea of truly believing in Jesus by sharing with us one of the most eye-popping miracles that Jesus ever performed, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This is a great passage. I'm looking forward to sharing this with you today. So we're going to be in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. If you have arrived there in your Bible, say amen. Here we are, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord. If he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. We'll stop there for now. Well, in verses 1 and 2... The gospel writer John introduces us to three siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now, as you probably know, Lazarus was a very popular name in Israel in Jesus' day. Just in the New Testament, there's something like five different Marys mentioned. And so John knew he needed to let us know which Mary he was talking about. So there in verse 2, he says he's talking about the Mary whose brother Lazarus lay sick was the one who was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. It's interesting he says that because he doesn't even tell us that story until the next chapter, chapter 12. But evidently it was well known among his early readers, the story of Mary anointing his feet uh, with that perfume. 
And so he says, that's the Mary I'm talking about and her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. Now, Bethany was probably just, well, we know it was just about two miles from Jerusalem. And so if you look on the map of Israel here, you see Bethany, the arrows pointing to it. It's right next door to Jerusalem. And if you look at the next map, you'll see that it's just down the road from the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, where Jesus would be praying, toiling in prayer before he was arrested, uh, just a couple miles down the road was Bethany. And so that's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Verse 3, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. It's clear that Jesus had a close relationship with Lazarus. It's clear that he cared for all of them. They were mentioned back in Luke chapter 10, earlier in Jesus' ministry. You may remember in Luke 10, tells the story of how Jesus was at their home, and, and there Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, remember? And what was her sister Martha doing? She was running around like a chicken with her head cut off. You know, she's getting a meal all prepared. She's doing all this single-handed, and, and she gets upset with her sister Mary, and she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all the work? Tell Mary to help me. And he says, Mary's actually doing the better thing. She's sitting at my feet, listening to my teaching. And so, evidently, Jesus would go over to their homes at least fairly often. We know two times for sure in the Gospels. So he was close with Lazarus. He was close with Mary. He was close with Martha. There's no doubt Lazarus and his sisters were near and dear to Christ's heart. Notice the way that Mary and Martha word their message to Jesus in verse 3. They don't say Lazarus is sick. How do they say it? The one you love is sick. That's interesting. Now, as you know, there's several Greek words used in the New Testament for love. Which one is used here? It's a word phileo. Say that with me. Phileo. So what does phileo mean? Phileo is the kind of love. It is a love between close friends or brothers. So when they say the one you love is sick, they're saying Jesus your close friend that you care so deeply about, the friend you love like a brother, he is sick. He is sick. And according to verse 5, Jesus loved Mary and Martha too. Well, Mary and Martha don't come right out and ask Jesus, get back to Bethany, lickety split, and heal our brother because he's about to die. They don't come right out and say, come and heal him. They basically just say, hey, Lord, the one you love is sick, wink, wink, you know what to do from here. It's kind of what they're saying. It's implied we want you to come heal him. This isn't just a, you know, a innocuous FYI. Hey, just thought I'd let you know he's sick. They want him to do something about it. So how does Jesus respond to the courier's message about Lazarus? Look at verse 4. Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Wow. If the messenger cared for Lazarus like Mary and Martha cared for Lazarus, and if that messenger believed in Jesus like Mary and Martha believed in Jesus, can you imagine how excited he would have been when Jesus said, give him this message, this sickness shall not end in death. He was excited. He gets to go back and give the good news. It won't end in death. It won't end in death. Imagine how devastated he was when he walked back into town and heard the mourners and realized that Lazarus had died. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Verse 6. 
After the messenger leaves, Jesus stays where he is for two more days. That's kind of baffling. Jesus loves Lazarus. He knows that Lazarus is on his deathbed. So why on earth doesn't he hurry to heal him before it's too late? I imagine the 12 disciples had some interesting conversations after Jesus hung around for two more days. Some of them assumed that he would drop everything he was doing and immediately bolt for Bethany because he loved his friend Lazarus. Others probably thought, nah, Jesus isn't going to go to Bethany. It's two miles from Jerusalem. Last time we were in Jerusalem, those Pharisees, they picked up rocks to to stone him to death. He's not going to go back there. He's not crazy. They knew that Jesus had the ability to heal from a distance. Remember back in chapter 4? In chapter 4, Jesus healed the official's son. And you know how far he was away when that official son was sick and on his deathbed in Capernaum? He was about 20 miles away. How far is he away from Bethany in chapter 11 here? About the same distance, about 20 miles. So back in chapter 4, Jesus healed someone who was deathly ill from 20 miles away. So some of those disciples said he doesn't need to go to Bethany. He can heal Lazarus from 20 miles away and still stay away from those Pharisees that want to kill him. So I imagine this discussion's going back and forth. But in verse 7, Jesus breaks the news to his disciples. Let us go back to Judea. Well, they're not wild about the plan, are they? They protest in verse 8. But Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you're going back there? They just don't get it. Jesus, remember what they tried to do the last time you were in Jerusalem. Remember, they had rocks in their hands. They were going to chuck them at your head there in the temple. These guys hate you. They want to kill you. There's a reason you decided to come to no man's land a few weeks ago to get away from that threat. And now you want to go back? You want to go back? Why? It seems like an awfully big risk. Take another look at Jesus' response in verses 9 and 10. It's pretty deep. It's over my head, but it's pretty deep. Well, those are kind of one and the same, aren't they? (laughs) Pretty deep things tend to be over my head at times. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, but he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And all God's people say, huh? What on earth is he talking about? Well, I read this and reread it, and I consulted some commentaries. I think Jesus is saying three things. Let's look at these three things quickly. Number one, I think he's saying God gives us enough sunlight each day to get done what we need to get done in the light of day. I think that's encouraging. How many of you feel like you've got way too much to do in a normal day? Okay, I just don't have time for all of it. Isn't it good to know that God has given you enough daylight to get done in a day? what he has in mind for you to do in the daylight that day. I think that's encouraging. Some of us have bad time management skills. That's part of our problem. Some of us take on way too much. That's another problem. But Jesus gives us enough daylight to do what we need to do each day. I think that's pretty cool. The second thing I think Jesus is saying is this. God has given us the light of the world. Remember, Jesus spent several chapters talking about that. He's the light of the world. He has given us the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and the Father has made sure that the light of the world has enough time to do everything he has in mind for him to do, including healing Lazarus, before he is enveloped by darkness. That makes sense with what Jesus says here, doesn't it? Okay? 
So I'm going to go and I'm going to heal Lazarus. Don't worry. The Father has made sure that my light will, won't be snuffed out until I do everything the Father has in mind for me to do. And one of those things he has in mind for me to do is to heal Lazarus. And then finally, number three, I think God is also saying through Jesus here, the good news is that it is daytime right now. So right now you have the chance to take hold of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and be saved. But night is coming. So if you drag your feet and night comes before you accept Christ, it will be too late. You will stumble and fall in the darkness. You see how Jesus is saying that as well. There's a certain amount of daylight and there's a certain amount of darkness. And when daylight is over, darkness comes. And from a spiritual standpoint, if you do not accept the light of the world during this limited opportunity that you have as you're living here on earth, the darkness will come and it will be too late to accept him. Well, verses 11 through 14, Jesus and his 12 disciples have a little miscommunication. If you look at those verses again, beginning in verse 11, Lazarus, Jesus says, has fallen asleep. Well, the disciples think that he's talking about natural sleep. So when he says he has fallen asleep and I am going to wake him up, the disciples protest a little bit. Well, Jesus, you know what? If he's been sick, that's actually, according to doctors, one of the very best things for him. He needs to get some sleep. So maybe it's best that you not go wake him up. Just let him sleep. It'll be good for him. Like Jesus didn't know this already. Isn't it great when the disciples treat Jesus like he's an idiot? And we we make fun of the disciples sometimes, but sometimes we treat Jesus like he's an idiot. He knows this already. He created the universe. But it's like they're giving him an FYI, hey, rest is good for you when you're sick. And so Jesus, in his very compassionate and his very patient way, he speaks to them plainly. And he says in verses 14 and 15, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. There's that word believe. You see it? There it is. Why is Jesus risking his neck going to Bethany? Well, he's doing it to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. But let's, let's ask a more basic question. Why is Jesus going to raise Lazarus from the dead? I think there's at least a couple reasons. Reason number one, he's going because he wants to bring glory to both God the Father and to himself. That's what he says in verse 4. What he's going to do with Lazarus will bring glory to God. And then the second reason he points out here in verse 15 He wants to go heal Lazarus because it will draw the disciples into a deeper belief in him. So when it comes to asking Jesus for a miracle, we tend to focus like this when we ask for a miracle. I want the miracle for the miracle's sake. I I want you, God, to heal me of cancer. I want you to heal my family member of their chronic disease. I want you to break that addiction. I want you to help me pay uh, for my rent or my mortgage because I don't have the money. Whatever it is, we tend to be tunnel vision focused on him answering that prayer just for the sake of having that prayer answered. But notice Jesus here says, as amazing of a miracle as it's going to be for me to raise Lazarus from the dead, there's a much bigger reason that I'm doing that than simply raising Lazarus from the dead. You with me on that? I want to bring glory to God. And secondly, I want to increase your belief. They had already believed in him a little. Jesus' disciples, all 12 of them, they believed in him a little. But Jesus knew that within four months' time, he would be crucified. He would rise from the dead on Easter morning. And 40 days after that, he would ascend into heaven. 
So within about four to four and a half months of Jesus being here in John chapter 11, within four and four to four and a half months of this time, he would be back in heaven. He would no longer physically be alongside the disciples. And the level of faith that they had on this day would not be sufficient for the mission God had for them four months down the road on that day. And so Jesus saw they had a little bit of faith, but he needed them to have a whole lot of faith to do what he would call them to do in the book of Acts. Amen. And so he wants to increase their faith, and that's one of the reasons he would heal Lazarus. Well, verse 16, Jesus' disciple Thomas, he kind of has Eeyore syndrome. You know what Eeyore syndrome is? I guess I'll be okay. It's going to be okay. Look at, his, look at his words there in verse 16. Does this not sound like Eeyore? Let us go also that we may die with him. You know, it sounds like Eeyore. He, he has... Very little faith. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. He had a track record of doubting Jesus. He was a doubter. His faith was weak, but don't pick on him too much because you do have to hand it to him. At least he had courage. He doesn't believe that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't believe that Jesus is going to survive that trip back to the surrounding area of Jerusalem. But he's got a lot of courage because he's convinced they're going to be killed, but he straps on his sandals and says, let's go. He might not have faith, but he does have courage, and that's a pretty good thing. He does what his master wanted him to do. Well, let's pick up in verse 17 and see what happens as Jesus makes his way back to Bethany. Starting in verse 17. I think that's where I was, right? Yeah, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Well, traveling on foot to Bethany took a full day. Jesus rolls into town in verse 17, and he's told the bad news. Lazarus is dead. 
But he's not uh, body still warm dead, is he? He's not body still warm dead. He is body is cold and starting to get severely decomposed dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. He's on his fourth day inside the tomb, which means Lazarus died and was buried on the day the messenger delivered the message to Jesus. Hey, the one you love is sick. He died while the messenger was en route. Isn't that interesting? And so it begs the question, did Jesus know that Lazarus had died when he first gets that message? What do you think? He probably did. He probably did. So is there any reason why he wanted to wait to go raise him from the dead? If he had left immediately by the time he got there, Lazarus probably would have been in his second day in that tomb. So why didn't he raise him from the dead on the second day instead of waiting two days and going on the fourth day? Interesting question. I like how Chuck Swindoll answers this question. He says, in keeping with ancient Near Eastern custom, The dead man had been wrapped in spice-soaked linens and placed inside a burial cave the same day he died. Jewish literature from the 3rd century A.D. teaches that the soul of a dead individual remains near the body for three days, hoping to re-enter the body. Then, upon seeing decay set in, it gives up hope and departs. If this literature reflects established teaching, resurrection after the third day was unthinkable. Apparently, death plus decay was more hopeless than death alone. See what he's getting at? Two centuries later, in the third century, we do have historical records, Jewish teaching, that the soul hung out around the body after death for three days. After three days, it would see that body in a severe state of decay and would say there's no hope and would go to wherever the soul goes. Now, is that biblical teaching? No, it's not. But that's what the Jews believed 200 years later. So the question comes up, did they believe that in Jesus' day? If they did, that would help explain why he waited until the fourth day. He waited until, in everybody's mind, it was absolutely a lost cause to try to bring him back. Interesting, this is not the only time that Jesus raises someone from the dead in the Gospels. He raises in Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter from the dead. Over in Luke chapter 7, he raises the widow's son from the dead. But in both cases, those bodies were still warm, dead for at most a few hours. And so if the Jews did believe this, that the soul hovers around for a little while, they thought, well, maybe there's a little bit of hope that God would put life back in that body. But after three days, there would be no hope. There would be no hope. In verses 20 and 21, when Martha heard the news that Jesus was on the edge of town, she hurries out to meet him and in anguish says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha's baffled. Jesus, it is no less dangerous for you to be here two miles from Jerusalem. It's no less dangerous for you to be here today than it would have been for you to be here four days ago. You know all things. You love Lazarus. You know he was sick. Why didn't you come then? Why wait until now? It's not safer than it would have been before he died. Why'd you do it, Jesus? 
She makes it clear in verse 24 that she knows that Lazarus will be resurrected at the end of time. So she sees some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus responds in verse 25 by sharing his fifth I am statement here in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Isn't that good? We've seen four I am statements so far. Back in John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, as he was standing by those large candelabras for the Feast of Tabernacles there in the temple courts, he said, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, Jesus, as he was drawing his listeners' attention to the shepherds and the sheep out on the Judean hillsides, he said, I am the gate for the sheep. And then he said, I am the good shepherd. And here he has his fifth I am statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Say that with me. I am the resurrection and the life. Now like you mean it, I am the resurrection and the life. And then Jesus uses the word believes three times. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks Martha point blank, do you believe this translation if you are a believer and follower of jesus christ and your body dies one day your body may die but your soul and spirit will still live amen Amen. and if you are a believer and follower of jesus christ who happens to be alive when the rapture of the church happens and jesus comes to take us home if you live to see the rapture your body won't even die But your soul and spirit will continue to live on. So whether your body dies or whether your body doesn't die, it don't matter. Your soul and spirit will live on eternally. That's what Jesus is saying. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. Jesus asked Martha in verse 26, do you believe this? And she responds in verse 27 with one of the most beautiful confessions of faith in the entire New Testament. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. Oh, there's so much good stuff in this confession. Lord, that's a good start, isn't it? Your master, you are Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. You are the promised one from the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament scriptures. You are the Messiah, the anointed one. You are also the son of God. You're not just a Messiah who is simply a man. You're also God in human flesh. You are the Son of God who is to come into the world. That's another indication that I believe you are the one who is the absolute fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. This is a wonderful confession of faith that she says here. Verse 28, Martha returns home, summons her sister Mary. Mary hurries to Jesus, falls at his feet. By the way, every time you see Mary in Scripture, she's at Jesus' feet. Isn't that cool? One of the commentaries I was reading last week pointed that out, and I got to thinking, wow, he's right. Yeah. She's either at his feet anointing him with oil, or she's at his feet listening to his teaching, or here she's at his feet crying out to him in anguish. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing Martha had said to him. And in the verses that follow, we're given a beautiful glimpse of our Savior's love and compassion. Jesus sees the tears streaming down Mary's cheeks and he hears the loud wailing of her family members and friends. So as he makes his way to Lazarus' tomb, Jesus is overcome with emotion, which leads to the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus 
wept. Jesus wept. Now many Christians over the years, including myself, have joked about this verse at times. You go to a fellow Christian, hey, uh, do you ever memorize Bible verses? And the guy kind of snarky responds, oh yeah, I memorize Bible verses. I've got one right now. Jesus wept. Come on. It's got two words. Shortest verse in the Bible. Why is the verse so short? Uh, I want you to think about this. Great things come in small packages, don't they? Maybe that verse is so short because that verse is so big. It speaks volumes. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Listen to the insight from Warren Wiersbe. He says, Jesus wept is the shortest and yet the deepest verse in Scripture. Our Lord's weeping reveals the humanity of the Savior. He has entered into all our experiences and knows how we feel. He is indeed a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Aren't you thankful for that? He's entered into all our experiences and he knows how we feel. How many of you know that? He knows how you feel. Amen? Look at this next quote. This is really good as well. William Barclay writes, To the Greek reader, that little sentence, Jesus wept, would be the most astonishing thing in an astonishing story. You see, the Greeks believed in an isolated, passionless, and compassionless God. What a different picture Jesus gave. He showed us a God whose heart is wrung with anguish for the anguish of his people. The greatest thing Jesus did was to bring us the news of a God who cares. Isn't that beautiful? The Greeks believed that whatever God was out there, Zeus or whoever, they believed that he was passionless, compassionless. He had no emotion. He was just very stoic. You know, facts, just the facts. And Jesus comes on the scene knowing full well that in just a few moments he would be raising Lazarus from the dead. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He knew those people would be celebrating in a few minutes, but he weeps with him anyway. Jesus wept. Maybe you've never thought about it before, but that's a very deep and telling verse. You serve a Savior who deeply cares for you. Let's finish the passage picking up in verse 38, still here in John chapter 11. So we pick up in verse 38. It gets even better. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out. His hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him go. Isn't that good? When Jesus, yeah, that was really good. Yay, Jesus. Wasn't that good? When Jesus arrived at Lazarus' tomb, he gave the men in the crowd a simple command, take away the stone. Can you imagine the look on those men's faces? 
probably looking at each other, I don't think this is a very good idea. And then they glance over at Martha. What do you want us to do? You know, they would defer to Martha. She was the sister. Jesus, he had some authority, but they ain't going to roll that stone away unless one of the sisters says so, right? Or at least gives the blessing. And so they're talking at each other. They must have made some eye contact with Martha. And Martha says, I'll take care of this. Martha speaks up. And what does she say? But Lord, by this time there's a bad odor. For he's been in there for four days. Once again, Jesus knew this already, didn't he? But they decide they're going to fill him in. And you know what? Martha had a point. Four days in the tomb. You know what? She had a point. No embalming, no refrigeration, just a warm body left to the elements. It's going to stink. I, I did a little homework this last week and discovered some information from a mortician. He remained anonymous, but a mortician describes what happens to the body within the first four days without refrigeration or embalming. And here's what he writes. As soon as breathing and blood circulation ceases, decomposition begins. An acidic environment is created which begins to rupture and destroy cells within the human body. Internal organs begin to decompose. Muscles begin to stiffen after three to six hours. Then he goes on to say, By three days, internal organs have decomposed. From three to five days after death, the body will begin to bloat from gases produced from internal decomposition. The body could actually double in size, turn a greenish color. Extremely unpleasant and long-lasting odors called putrefaction begins. It gets more gross, so I'll stop right there. You get the idea. Bottom line, Martha knew what she was talking about. Lazarus's body would stink to high heaven by now. You don't want to roll that stone away, Jesus. You're going to have some people falling over because of the stench. She brings this to his attention. But the truth is, Jesus had never said, Lazarus won't die. What he had told the messenger was, his sickness will not end in death. He didn't say he wasn't going to die. He said it's not going to end in death. In death. In verse 40, he responds, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So Martha says, Okay, men, roll it away. And that's what they do. They roll the stone away. Martha seems to have gotten the men to do this. And in verse 41, they roll the stone away. Now, although John doesn't tell us when they rolled the stone away, that stench from the tomb probably poured out and anyone within a few feet of that entrance could probably smell it but notice jesus with lazarus still very much dead jesus looks up to heaven and he prays father i thank you that you have heard me i knew that you always hear me but i said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me and then jesus shouted lazarus come out come out <laughs> And in a brief moment of time, millions of Lazarus's decomposing cells were regenerated. His internal organs that had been digested and decomposing were reformed. His swelling subsided. His color was restored. 
And his body was reanimated with the breath of life. And this guy starts coming out of the tomb. There he is, coming on out. And you imagine the sight. People looking at him. Ah! The mummy returns. Scared half to death, but at the same time thrilled that at the word of Jesus Christ, the dead had been raised. Wow. Imagine the shock on everyone's face when he walked out of that tomb. Jesus is awesome. Years ago, a Puritan preacher was thinking about the raising of Lazarus, and he says, you know what? There's a reason Jesus called Lazarus by name. Because if he had simply yelled, come forth, every dead body within earshot would have raised from the dead and come out of their tombs. Maybe. (laughs) That's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons that we can pull from this great passage today. Lesson number one. When God doesn't do what you think he should do, when you think he should do it, believe that his plans and his timing are much better than yours. Amen? Read that with me. When God doesn't do what you think he should do, when you think he should do it, believe that his plans and his timing are much better than yours. Both God's plans and his timing are perfect. You've got to believe it. Sometimes it doesn't feel like God's going to come through. Sometimes it feels like his timing stinks. But believe it. His timing and his plans are perfect. No matter how it feels. Lesson number two. When God doesn't answer your prayers for healing, thank him. Believe that by answering your prayer with a no Or a wait, Jesus will be more glorified than if he answered your prayer with a yes. Read that with me. When God doesn't answer your prayers for healing, thank him. Believe that by answering your prayer with a no or a wait, Jesus will be more glorified than if he answered your prayer with a yes. What did that courier, that messenger, expect when Jesus said his sickness will not end in death? He expected that to mean Lazarus will not die. That's not how it played out, was it? Jesus basically gave him a wait. (laughs) He's not going to end with death. This will not end in death. So Mary and Martha's request of Jesus was clear. Come and heal our brother so that he does not die. And Jesus basically says, no, wait for the healing. Sometimes he does that, doesn't he? Chuck Swindoll writes, if the Lord were to answer every prayer for healing by restoring health, no one would ever die, but we would be stuck in bodies that feel pain, fall ill, experience injury, grow tired, and wear out forever. We would be forced to ride a perpetual roller coaster of illness and health, injury and repair. Thank God he has a better way. Amen. He brought Lazarus back from the dead for the greater good of all, but eventually Lazarus died again. The man joyfully traded his failing flesh for the hope of a body that cannot be touched by evil. Think about that. If God answered every one of our prayers for healing, that would be a terrible way to live. I get sick, he heals me. I get cancer, he heals me. I get some ailment, he heals me. Over and over and over again, endlessly. I don't want that, do you? Call me home to heaven one of these times. 
Heal me a few times, but don't heal me every time. I'm so glad that he doesn't always answer my prayers with a yes. Finally, lesson number three, and read this one with me. When you weep, remember that you are not weeping alone. Believe that Jesus sees each tear that falls, feels your pain, and hears you when you call. Isn't that good? Warren Wiersbe makes this really deep point. Perhaps Jesus was weeping for Lazarus as well as with the sisters. Hang on his words here. This is good. Because Jesus knew he was calling his friend from heaven and back into a wicked world where he would one day have to die again. (laughs) Jesus had come down from heaven, so he knew what Lazarus was leaving behind when he called him forth from heaven to raise him from the dead. Huh. That's an interesting angle on this, isn't it? Some of you may like Christian comedian John Christ. Listen to what he has to say about Lazarus. Lazarus died. Jesus called him back to life. It's a miracle, right? Everyone, like Jesus looks like the hero. It's great, right? Inspirational story. All the loved ones are sad. They're happy again. It's a miracle for everyone involved except Lazarus. Read the story. He was dead for four days in heaven. Just up there decorating his mansion. Okay, this is awesome. I can't believe we're finally here. This is great. He had a bum knee. That was fixed. He's walking better, feeling good. You know what I'm saying? Shooting hoops to the disciples. What's up, fellas? Y'all chill? Not the disciples. They weren't there yet. Uh, uh, Noah, Abraham. Sorry. Uh, What's up? I can't believe it. Streets of gold. Mansions is incredible. We're in, in paradise with God forever. Worshiping. No more pain. No more suffering. We finally made it. Just in the mansion. Just. Excuse me. Um, is Lazarus here? <laughs> he comes around the corner. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, listen. Uh, we don't normally do this, but... Uh, Mm. Oh, man. Listen, uh, we got to send you back. <laughs> back to the Middle East with no air conditioning. Sorry. <laughs> what are we doing? Oh, Jesus did it for a reason. Not for Lazarus' sake, but to bring glory to God. Amen. To increase the faith of his disciples and those around. To prove that he is not just Lord of the living. He is also Lord of the dead. We serve an awesome Savior. And I encourage you, trust in Him even when He tells you no to your prayers. Trust in Him even when He says wait because He truly does know what's best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You and we thank You so much for sending Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank You for this amazing account of going to Bethany, doing something very risky, Lord, going into an area just a couple short miles from people with stones in hand who wanted to kill you. Thank you for doing that. You could have healed him before he died. You could have healed him from a distance. You didn't need to go to Bethany, Lord Jesus, but you did. Why? To increase our faith, to increase their faith, and to bring glory to the Father. I pray, O God, that when we do what we do and when we say what we say, we would do those things and say those things for the exact same reasons. Lord, may we do what we do to bring glory to you. May we say what we say 
to bring people to a deeper level of belief in Christ. We love you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. I pray if there's anyone here who needs to accept you as Savior and Lord, that they would make that decision right now and come to you in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, please have mercy on me. Please forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry that I have broken your laws. Please come into my life. Take the wheel, the driver's seat, and lead my life from this point forward. I accept you as my Savior, and I accept you as my Lord. And I will obey you and trust you and follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.